0: Hey everybody, I'm Amna Navaz. This is Uncomfortable. The goal, as you guys know, is to have open unflinching dialogue about some of the issues that we see dividing America right now. So each week, we have a special guest. We focus in on what people believe and why they believe what they do when it comes to the work that they do. Today, our guest is Heidi Byrick. You are the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, which most people may know as the SPLC, right?
1: Yes. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks
0: so much for being here. So as part of the Intelligence Project, you guys... Um, published basically two things that a lot of people follow and know or have heard about in the news, right? There's the Intelligence Report, which is sort of the preeminent leading periodical that actually monitors radical groups in America. Um, And then there's the Hate Watch blog, which a lot of people have been talking about recently, too. Is that sort of the bulk of the work you guys do there?
1: Yeah, those are two big publishing platforms on uh, the radical right. So Mm -hmm. basically white supremacy and anti-government extremists. We also put out annually uh, a list of hate groups in the United States Mm -hmm. and anti government uh, groups, and we have a hate map on our website which a lot of people refer to when they're talking about the extent of extremism in the U.S.
0: We've been hearing this word so much recently, hate and hate crimes and hate groups and and acts of hate. And I want to dig into a lot of that definition and how we define it and how we quantify it. But we really like to explore how people come to do the thing that they do um, here, too. So I'm curious about you, how how someone comes to work in hate. (laughs) Tell me about you.
1: Well, it's it was a bit of a roundabout thing. Okay. So I was in graduate school getting my Ph.D. at Purdue University. I was studying fascism in Europe. I was actually studying Spain specifically. And uh, I knew about the Southern Poverty Law Center because when I was growing up, when I was in high school at Vista High School in the 80s, one of my friends was actually the son of of the head of the white Aryan resistance at the time. Really? Yeah. The guy's name is Tom Metzger, not the son, but the father.
0: Okay. And where were you growing up? Uh,
1: it's northern San Diego County, okay. Vista, California. And the um, Tom Metzger was sued by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, his organization was sued, frankly, out of existence because some of its members, skinheads, uh, were involved in the beating death of an Ethiopian immigrant in Portland. So when I was in high school, this lawsuit was going on. and this I was knew your a, friend's
0: father, basically. My friend's
1: father, John Metzger, who went to a different high school, but I would run into him on swim team and other situations. So I was very, wow. very cognizant of SPLC from a young age. I also had friends when I was at Vista High School who got sucked into White aryan Resistance's skinhead movement. So there was a certain personal dynamic, not just knowing John Metzger, but also this weird situation where I knew people who became racist skinheads connected with Metzger. So in any event, I'm graduating from my Ph.D. I'm writing about the Spanish constitutional court and extremism. And I go out in the academic world to find a job. And I end up applying for an internship at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. My intention at the time, I mean, I was very excited about working there because I knew about how they'd sued Wired air and Resistance. I thought these kinds of groups were heinous, terrible for the United States. So I go there as an intern. And here I am 17 years later, and I'm running the project that I was interning for. Wow. So I thought I would eventually end up in academia, but the work became addictive. I found, you know, I found it to be extremely important. Uh, and I just, you know, never went back to academia.
0: <laughs> but back it up for me for a sec, though. Before you got to the the PhD in fascism, <laughs> and as you're seeing friends around you uh, joining some of these groups, adopting this mindset, back it up even further for me. Was this a thing where you grew up? Was were there tensions? Was Was white nationalism uh, an issue?
1: Yeah. In northern San Diego County in the late 70s and the 1980s, there was a pretty strong white supremacist presence. Now, I was still pretty young when Tom Metzger actually ran for Congress as a Democrat in Mm -hmm. the late 70s. But in northern San Diego County at the time, which was pretty rural then, it's not anymore. Mm -hmm. He drew 60,000 votes in the area. Uh, There was very strong white nationalist and anti-government activism in the whole region. Orange County is the next county to the north in California. That's where the John Birch Society had a huge foothold in the 60s and the 70s. So the whole region, um, which is so different today, right, because it's so much more – it's multi-ethic, right? It's not the same. But the whole region had some very extremist politics infecting it. In fact, my high school history teacher was – like somebody out of Doctor Strange love. He was a rabid anti communist, um, you know, didn't uh. think Reagan was radical enough. So there was a lot of this going on in the area. Yeah. And just personally watching um, one of my best friend's uh, brothers get sucked into this racist skinhead life and it, it destroyed him, basically.
0: What do you mean by that? Um, and how old were you when you were seeing um, all this?
1: So I graduated from high school in 1985. So this is the early 80s yeah. and I'm in my, you know, late teens, teens 15, yeah. 16, 17, but years that's old. When you
0: first started noticing.
1: Yeah, this is when I had the run-ins. This is when I met John Metzger. Everybody knew that his dad was a big neo-Nazi leader in the area. Yeah, and I watched these friends get into this movement, get involved in violence, street violence, um, get into conflicts with you know Mexican uh, colleagues and students and whatnot, and a lot of them ended up in prison actually for what was didn't exist then, but we would now call hate crimes. And so I watched their lives get destroyed. So I understand how powerful and magnetic some of this stuff can be, especially if you have a charismatic leader like Tom Metzger was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know what it can do to people. And it and it, it destroys the person involved in the movement. But it also, of course, destroys those people who are affected by it. Right. The people who are on the receiving end of violence or uh you know, negative propaganda and so on. So maybe the seeds of why I have remained at SPLC so long have something to do with that time period.
0: How was it back then? How was it talked about? What was it the kind of thing was happening on the sidelines and you don't really talk about it? Or was it one of those things that was rigorously debated out in the open and everyone felt strongly about?
1: It was not debated at like the teacher level at the student level everybody knew this was going on in fact white Aryan resistance used to distribute flyers on my campus so really? they're yeah they're propaganda like recruiting yeah it would be, they would drop them they'd be all over the place so you'd see these pictures of like a skinhead beating a black man that was one image that i can remember in black and white on these kind of xerox sheets mm-hmm. so we all knew this was going on it was also the era of punk music Uh, Strains of which could wander into white supremacy. Hate music events were happening Mm -hmm. um, all over that area, so Orange County going south into Northern San Diego County. So we knew about it, but people didn't talk about it. Right? This wasn't. It's not like something you would see on the nightly news. It was not a debated issue. It was more like um, a dirty secret. I was going to say, say. was
0: it like a taboo type thing that you don't want to acknowledge? Is it was very
1: taboo, and in fact, uh, the friends of mine who's you know, one friend whose brother got sucked up into this, the parents didn't even want to talk about it. It was a very embarrassing thing to have happen. Yeah. And there was like no social support network or anything to draw people away from it. And so the SPLC, when they sued a white-earing resistance, this was a big deal because it was somebody taking, you know, a very public stance and saying, no, mm-hmm. this is bad stuff. These are bad, rotten ideas. And the violence that comes out of this movement should stop. The lawsuit was a civil action to, to defund the group, mm-hmm. which they won and won millions in damages that went to the child, actually, of the guy who was killed, the Ethiopian immigrant. So, you know that that had an impression upon me as well, that SPLC did something affirmative to stop this. And it really did. It bankrupted white Aryan resistance. Tom Metzger was no longer a major figure in the movement. Mm-hmm. And the amount of white supremacist activity in that region declined as a result.
0: How do you now, in the work that you do, tracking and monitoring a lot of these groups that are doing and saying uh, and spreading terrible messages and things, Um, How do you spend your days? What are you physically doing all day? Like, what does that work entail? Sure. Well, I
1: think in many ways I don't look any different than anybody else who's sitting at a cubicle, right? (laughs) So it's a lot of hours uh, on websites or reading the publications these organizations put out. Uh, It takes an incredible amount of research to create these lists of these groups. Mm -hmm. So we had 917 hate groups on our list this year, but we probably looked at another thousand groups to consider them for the list.
0: Another thousand yeah. that didn't make the cut.
1: Yeah, that didn't make the cut for whatever reason. And Where is
0: that line, though? Sure.
1: Well, we have a definition. Yeah. It's, it's actually on our website. It's on our uh, hate map. When we look at what we want you know if we're thinking about are we going to list this as a hate group the first thing that most people don't understand is it's not just about like is the group violent we don't look at that although a lot of these groups are violent
0: physically violent in yes some way. Fi-
1: involved in vi- physical violence of various kinds or members are yeah uh, what we're looking at is their ideology so what is it that this group believes based on its founding documents um, what do the leaders say and are specific, what we're specifically looking for, do they treat an entire other group of people by their inherent characteristics? This could be Jews. This could be white people, because we also list black hate groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be immigrants, Muslims, and so on. Do they treat that whole group of people as lesser? In other words, do they propagandize against them? So... Um, you know, organizations that are anti-black that allege, for example, black people are more criminal, more sexually violent, dumber, whatever the list of things particulars might be. A group like that's going to get on our list mm-hmm. because they're ascribing these behaviors or bad motives to all black people. That's the key point. In other words, there's a bad person of any kind in any group, mm-hmm. right? You can say this particular person is, you know – whatever criminal sure. violent whatever the point is is that you're saying it about every single member of that category And so it's real easy to see when you have an organization that, for example, thinks all Jews should be exterminated, right, because they're destroying America. Sometimes it's a little more subtle. Mm -hmm. Like when you look at anti-LGBT groups uh, where they're saying, for example, all, you know, gay men molest at higher rates, gay men are pedophiles, right? The propaganda can be a little more subtle, but the intention is the same as someone that says that, you know, black people are more criminal, black Mm -hmm. people are psycho, um, have psychopathologies, whatever. It's the same idea. So the ideology is the thing that we're looking at. And And so
0: day to day, you are immersing yourself in the things that they are putting out there online, on social media,
1: just trying to gather as much
0: information as you can about them. That's
1: right. And basically creating files, right? Dossiers on the groups, what they believe, what kinds of policies they're supporting, what they're up to. And then we have to make a hard call. You know, we don't want to name groups willy nilly as hate groups because that's a hell of a thing to say about somebody, right? Mm-hmm. That is not to be taken lightly. And so we're very particular about what we list. Uh, and for example, we don't list groups because they're against gay marriage. We're often accused of doing that. We will only list a group as an anti LGBT hate group if they demonize the gay population, an entire community. The entire community's got to be demonized.
0: So, can I ask you, what is that like? For you, just to live in that space, clearly bumping up against views that you personally do not hold to right. yourself, just every day, all day, immersed in it, what what kind of toll does that take on you?
1: You know, I get this question all the time, yeah. particularly for donors, right, to the law center who come through the building and they see us looking at, you know, some of the worst material you can imagine, right, just racist, anti-Semitic, ugly stuff. Yeah. Um it's hard to explain. I, I don't think it's taking a psychological toll. There's a, there's a certain passion that you develop to find these people, expose these people, know what they're up to because, you know, you feel like you're protecting this society. Hmm. You know, this country is uh, very soon going to have a white minority. In other words, no population is going to be a majority by the 2040s. So we can't move forward safely and securely for many of these populations if we don't identify the people who ultimately are pushing propaganda that encourages violence. I don't want my fellow Americans to feel that fear or to be exposed to hate crimes and, and the kinds of things that evolve out of this propaganda. So you have this sort of, you know, you have this mission driven attitude towards it. Now, I will say it sometimes it drives some black humor. And, you know, there. sometimes you do need a break from, right. from looking at this. But I think myself and my colleagues feel like it's, you know, it's a duty. Somebody's got to track these horrible people. We need to do it.
0: Let's talk about where we are as a country right now, um, because you sharing your story about what you were seeing around you growing up, Um, Reminds me that sometimes we talk about things as if they're new in this country now, whereas a lot of these groups have roots that go back generations and generations or in some other form, right? And then they take a new form moving forward. Uh, Sort of when you look at the landscape of hate in America or these radical groups in America, what is the trend line? Have there been ebbs and flows like historical triggers that cause surges in support for them and then they kind of flow back To
1: lower levels, has there been a trend line up or down? Where where are we now? Well, I think sometimes Americans forget that this country was founded on white supremacy, right? Slavery, uh, restricting the vote to white males, Mm -hmm. for example, well, wealthy white males, right? People who own property, and that really until the 1960s, the mid 1960s, with the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act and the immigration act mm-hmm. people should not forget that those 3 bills were seminal steps away from white supremacy right. that existed up till that day now we're only talking about 1965 when the last of those bills were passed right so the bulk Which is of not our that long ago. no the bulk of our history is one that is more in tune with white nationalism than it is with multiculturalism by a long shot uh, one of the things – so, first of all, we That's have to – That's actually under, an interesting
0: way to look at it, which is the majority yeah. of our American
1: history. Almost all of it, yeah. right, is was run by and for whites with the presumption that whites were superior people. So we have to keep that in mind. It was a revolution in the 1960s where what, what Martin Luther King – And the people who marched with him did was literally revolutionize this country and get rid of a stain that was there from the get-go. It's not just the United States. The same kind of thinking was in place across Europe and other countries Mm -hmm. that were majority white. So it it was really a revolution to see all people or at least to have a vision that all people are the same, mm-hmm. that, that was and not should the the And should be treated tra- the same under the law and seen and the treated- same
0: and all those things. That's yeah, right. Those are be- all fairly modern ideas. That's
1: right, because it was j- de jure discrimination, right? It was by law discrimination. Right. It wasn't just because, like, oh, I don't like black people. So, right. no, I mean, it was the legal system was punishing against non-whites. Our immigration system didn't let anybody except for, quote-unquote, Nordics right. into the country. So there's that. So uh, to have white supremacist groups in the United States is not surprising, given that history. So the more, uh, more recent uh, pattern is this. Uh, in the nineteen nineties, the center's been counting these groups forever. It started its Klan Watch in actually in the eighties, and then expanded out to cover all kinds of white supremacists. Mm-hmm. In the nineteen nineties, the number of hate groups bounced around a lot. You know, four fifty one year, four seventy five the next, maybe four hundred after that. There wasn't really a trend line. There was more or less somewhere between, you know, three hundred and fifty and four hundred and fifty hate groups. Okay, that changed in two thousand, starting in two thousand, when we had six hundred and two hate groups. After that the march was largely upwards. So the trend Just in
0: terms of the number of yes, groups. Yes. They okay.
1: just started rising. It was a big difference.
0: But is that and, sort of like is that like, you know, there used to be just one Taliban in one part of the of South Asia and then there were factions and suddenly no. there are like
1: four different splinter groups yeah. you have to worry about? There's there's was, some well, to be fair there can be that happening, yeah. right? But I would argue that's not the major pattern that happened here. This was actually the rise of of new organizations. Whole cloth, more people, more, in other words, too. Yeah, and and the way the reason I can say more people definitively is I can just look at a web forum like Stormfront, which is a hate site. The old mm-hmm. it was founded in ninety five, same time as AOL, first hate site on the web. Their membership has doubled since Obama came into office. It was growing back then as well. So mm-hmm. there, that's like a real world fact. Besides, just the numbers of groups. No, I would argue the reason that the number of hate groups started growing at that time is because in 2000 is the year the census came out and said in 2042, that was the year that year, the white population will be a minority. And that's scared. that set off alarm bells? it, It definitely set off alarm bells. So I was already monitoring these groups in 99. And what happened was all of a sudden, everything from the Klan to white nationalist groups decided to start attacking immigration as opposed to black people, which had been their bread and butter for decades. And there's a reason for that. Mexican immigration to the United States was growing and it was the demographic threat. It's immigrants that are going to swamp out white people. That's from their perspective mm-hmm. so they shifted their rhetoric they started attacking immigration they held rallies on the basis of immigration had had no interest in that five years before i mean it's not like they liked immigrants but they just didn't think of them as much problematic. that wasn't the
0: threat in other words no. So you saw a definite shift yes. then in terms of tack
1: and yes. resources and, and focus and, and they talked about the demographic threat they're very cognizant of what they're facing if you're white supremacist and whites are going to be the minority it's game over right. so you better get to it and they did. And then, you know, the financial crisis hit that fed more people to the movement like they all that always does.
0: Well, this is the other part of this mm. I wanted to ask you about, because so much of it is ideology, but a lot of it is real world factors, right? Mm-hmm. That people who are prone to want to see other people as enemies or taking resources from them, there are things that happen outside of race or identity or religious context that
1: trigger those kinds of things, Right economics are really really important here it's very easy to suck up the idea that it's immigrants stealing your jobs when the economy is collapsing and jobs are really disappearing right or right. well, you don't to sca- have a job that's right you don't have a job yeah. so it's an easy scapegoat right it's a it's a simple message that hate groups understand and pushed all through that financial you know up to today yeah. right the financial crisis then obama got elected When Obama was elected and there was a black man in the White House, that sent shivers up the spine of white supremacists Hmm. and helped fuel their recruiting efforts. You saw a surge then? Absolutely. How big? Um, I'm trying to remember what the jump was in the number of groups, and it was probably, you know, 100, 150 in the course of a year. And we have 917 of them as of 2016.
0: So that's from the 400s and the 90s to a little over 900 today yeah, yeah. in s- the span of,
1: of, of you know, just
0: 20 so years. That's right.
1: So it's wow. there's real strength there. And Stormfront, that website that yeah. I was mentioning, has more than 300,000 registered users at this point.
0: And that's how you measure membership.
1: Yeah, well, they measure it. They tell you, actually, this is how many people we have registered on our forum. They put so, out a newsletter, yeah, like yeah.
0: membership numbers? Yeah, or, they okay. put the
1: numbers right on the front page. So you can just go ahead and look at it, and you can see, wow, that's 300,000 people who are on a neo-Nazi website.
0: But that's that's self-reporting. Those are people who actually went
1: there and signed up to be members. That they say went there and signed up. Yeah. And do you you trust those numbers? I do trust the numbers. You can see uh, when we do scrapes of Stormfront, we can actually see that this is a real thing. Now, that doesn't mean all those 300,000 people are, you know, completely active on a regular basis. Right. But they have gone to that website, they have gotten themselves a username, they've gotten themselves a password, and in most cases, they have posted something on there. They're
0: being reached by the message at the very least. Let's talk about where we are now as a country post-election, because you guys put out a couple of interesting reports right after the 2016 election, right? Tell me about
1: those. Sure. So we put out uh, a report 10 days after the election Mm -hmm. on the level of hate violence and hate incidents that we had seen just since the Wednesday after Donald Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we had had something like 800 incidents in that short span of time. We also put out a report about schools. Mm-hmm. So during the campaign, we sent a survey to ten thousand teachers. We did not mention the names of any of the candidates in this survey, mm-hmm. and we asked the teachers to report back about what the school climate was on their campuses during mm-hmm. this um, this election. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not only did we find that hate incidents exploded after the election, but we also found that the Trump administration and the Trump campaign had created a school climate that was quite horrible for minority children, um, for uh, immigrant kids, Muslim kids, and so on. The, the level of sort of, you know, you're going to be deported, you're a Muslim, get out of the country, terrorists, like these incidents were happening all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, and really... What these two things amount to is the racial climate was scary for minorities in the wake of the election. I would argue that people who liked Trump's attacks on Mexicans, Muslims, women, others were emboldened by the election and played that out in the days afterwards. I mean, literally the day after the election, my phone was ringing off the hook with people reporting hate incidents. It was uh, I'd never experienced anything like it. You know, and, and I say hate incidents, I should clarify. That, that doesn't yeah. mean they're necessarily crimes. Mm-hmm. It could be somebody walking down the street and someone screams at them, terrorists, go home. Now, that's protected speech. Right. But it's an ugly thing to have happen to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those incidents were violent and therefore criminal or they were property defacement. And that's a crime, too.
0: Were you – I remember when the reports came out. I read them both. Um, and the the first question I had was how do you know – how can you verify all of those? So are you able to vet Everything that everyone submits.
1: Well, we obviously could not vet what happened just in the few days right after the election. Yeah, um, The stuff that came from teachers was their self-reporting, right? Mm-hmm. So we took them at face value. But that doesn't mean that some of them couldn't be, you know, wrong or lying or whatever. There's not much we can do about that. Mm-hmm. We are now uh, – we are – so, we would use media reports to help vet things and law enforcement reports, you know, police incidents where we could get our hands on them. To
0: cross check, verify and, where you could. And
1: now, in the last month or two, we're working with ProPublica to, to really do the vetting that you're asking about.
0: Now you are. To go okay. through
1: the data seriously. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of others working on the Project Huffington Post, and the New York Times was investigating some of these things. Anyhow, there's a yeah. lot of journalists working to verify the incidents Mm -hmm. and provide all that data to the public. Mm -hmm. The database is already up. And then hopefully to refer uh, criminal cases where warranted if that hasn't already occurred.
0: Is it fair? Because part of this comes down to the way in which people are sharing their stories. In self-reporting, there's an inherent flaw, right? You're relying on people to define for themselves and then report to you without any way to verify it on the back end. Sure. And also, there, there wasn't a place for people to report before. Right. So are you is there any concern that because is it sort of like a if you build it, they will come idea like we gave people a place to report hate. And so they did so in larger numbers than they otherwise would have.
1: I would guess there's at least some of that. I think it would be ridiculous to argue uh, differently. But even so, uh, we've been collecting hate incidents out of the press and from cops for literally a couple decades. And in a 10 day period, you're not going to get more than, if it was really extraordinary, maybe a dozen incidents. Mm-hmm. So there was something different going on at this point of time. Now, I agree with you, if you build it, they will come. But I would still argue that these numbers are far out of whack from what we normally uh, see. And yeah. we will find, we've already found that a few will be hoaxes. Or it'll be personal stories that we can't verify. But even so, these numbers are so much Higher than what we would get in this time period, that there's no question that there was a wave of hate that broke out after that election.
0: What kind of I want to ask you about those hoaxes because they get so much attention, mm-hmm. and even if the people who are involved in them have the same intention you do of calling, you know, greater awareness and and letting people know these things are happening, they effectively undermine the entire argument, right? Because they yes. the handful of hoaxes that do occur for every I don't know how many other actual events that occur get shared very widely, right? Because they're more sensational. They're more interesting to read about and allow people to then say, well, how do we know everything yeah. else is real too?
1: No, what you say is exactly right. I really, uh, the hoaxes are very upsetting. First of all, it serves no purpose. Secondly, one or two hoaxes, and there are hoaxes in any kind of criminal You know, any kind of crimes you're collecting. Sure. You know, you've got fake insurance fraud. You've got this or that. What bothers me about this is that they can then be used to undermine the idea of hate crimes, period. And there are some uh, conservative websites that would like to act as though hate crimes aren't a real issue. And they take advantage of this. And the stuff is shared. So you're doing us no help by lying about a hate crime. You're causing us problems. And here's the bigger issue. The Department of Justice has done three studies looking at survey data, crime survey data they collect. And they tell us that every year there are 280,000 hate crimes in the United States. 280,000. That's the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. The FBI reports about 5,500. So the FBI itself is not collecting the data the way they need to. We Where did that
0: gap come from?
1: Under-reporting. Uh, state laws that are different from place to place, states with no hate crime laws. You know, South Carolina didn't have a hate crimes law. They couldn't charge uh, Dylan Roof for murdering nine black people under a hate crimes law. That's why the Fed stepped in there. Uh, no cop training on this front. Mm. There's a million things that I could point to. But if we understood that there are two hundred and eighty thousand hate crimes in this country, as opposed to the data that most people look at, we consider this a massive social problem, and we do something about it. Mm. But we don't. So the hoaxes undermine that reality as well.
0: I want to ask you. You, we talked a little bit about the some of the language used during the election and how you think it impacted. Or what we saw was a surge afterwards. But in in a recent interview, someone actually asked you, "Do you see uh, Mr. Trump as a symptom or a cause?" of the hate crimes. And you said, I don't think there's any question Trump is the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and you cited some of the anti-immigrant, xenophobic, uh, anti-women, et
1: cetera, language he
0: used during the campaign. Is, is that fair to lay that all at the foot of one man?
1: Absolutely fair. I mean, Trump was running for the highest office in the land here in the United States, I would argue, probably in the world, right? One of the most important political elected position that there is. Mm-hmm. Trump's first day of campaigning was to call Mexicans rapists and some other bad things. He used xenophobia and racism and misogyny throughout the campaign, and he used it to get elected. And And you can't say that this happened over and over again unless it was a calculated message to people about the kind of people he wants in this country and doesn't want in this country, the people he was going to favor and wasn't going to favor. And when we have racist speech coming from important public figures, Trump or otherwise, it makes a difference. For example, in the mid-2006, like 2006, 2007, 2008, there was a rash of uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric coming from politicians. There mm-hmm. was also organizing at the border by armed people who were like militias that were picking up the undocumented. There was all this anti-immigrant stuff going on. Right then and there, you saw a rise in the number of anti-immigrant hate crimes, when there were the debates over the ground Zero Mosque here in New York, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of anti-Muslim talk from people like Newt Gingrich and other figures, political figures, important ones, we saw a rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes.
0: You're saying the people with a platform and a voice carry they, responsibility they with the things that they do. do. But here's the other question is that, you know, in a lot of – and I read through the data on the reports too, particularly the school's report. I um, actually ended up – I was trying to – I was looking into doing a story, and I called around to at least three or four dozen of the people who would agreed to be contacted by the media – And their stories ranged from, you know, mildly offensive, absolutely offensive, but mildly offensive kind of comments being tossed out casually and the conversations that ensued to very disturbing, near-violent type incidents. But a lot of them were mimicking language that um, reflected ideas that have long existed in American society, I would argue. And so I'm I'm wondering if it's, you know— you say that you think Mr. Trump was the cause, but did he really just give language to a lot of things that already existed here?
1: Well, I don't disagree with you that this existed. I mean, this is the point about white supremacy for so long, but I would say he gave license to these ideas. He sanctioned them. He made them mainstream. In fact, Trump is the biggest uh, mainstreaming of hate person we've ever had.
0: Right? How do you know that? What do you mean by that?
1: Well, what I mean by that is in the past, let's talk about George Allen's run for Senate in 2006, for example, on the Republican ticket in Virginia. When he said macaca, which is an offensive word for black people, his candidacy was over. Uh, for the most part, the political parties did not allow people to use racist language and stay as candidates. Mm-hmm. That that was um, a non-starter. And and that was a good thing for our society because that means that at least at the highest levels, the national level, everybody understood that racism and hate and these kinds of things are bad and we don't want them involved in our political system. Trump has changed all that. He's in essence turned back the clock to, you know, the era of George Wallace and others who used racist language to try to get votes. And that's what we have right now. And that's why I consider it such a tragedy. And it's why it's not surprising that this wave of emboldened folks came out after the election and attacked at exactly those populations mm-hmm. that um, Trump attacked during uh, the campaign. Now, I, I should, a lot of
0: these groups had, uh, had really been emboldened. Because in the data, it showed a surge right afterwards, right? And then everything trailed off. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we be seeing sustained levels of those kinds of attacks?
1: No. Elections usually can, well, usually bring out the worst in us uh, it depends on the circumstances. After the Brexit vote, for example, in England last mm-hmm. summer, where Muslims were demonized and immigrants throughout the throughout the campaign, we saw a wave of attacks, huge spike of attacks on them as well. Those were emboldened supporters. These things, uh, as social movements, tend to peter out a little bit. Now, we're still having these attacks. I think as of Monday, there were more than 1,800 that we had documented, but it's not at the levels that it was before. Mm-hmm. I might also say that... Um, the Trump campaign has toned down the rhetoric a little bit now they have not uh, and I wish they would Trump campaign Trump administration has not come out and and you know, specifically denounced hate crimes and any supporters who might be engaging in that kind of activity. But Trump did make a statement about Mm anti-Semitism to the Congress a couple weeks ago.
0: And actually, he would argue, and I'm sure his administration would argue, he has said to people committing violence in his name, stop
1: it. Yeah. Well, that's about the extent of what he said, which is stop it. Right. Right. And he had to been dragged kicking and screaming, right, by reporters to make those comments. I wish he would be presidential in the way that George W. Bush was after 9-11 and make a full-on. Statement about how this stuff is terrible. I. I don't want anybody committing hate acts, crimes, bias instance, in my name. Uh, George W. Bush did a very important thing after 9-11 by going to a mosque and denouncing what was then an outbreak, actually, of murders of people who thought were uh, Muslims, right, because of the attacks. Mm -hmm. And he said that Muslims are part of our community, they're our brothers. I mean, I don't remember the exact words, but it was along those lines. And that put a stop to that wave of hate.
0: But let me ask you, Heidi, do you think that would help or make a difference? Because the counter-argument to that is look, people will find in the message the thing that they want to find. And to their defense, they can't control who supports them. So, you know, if you come out and publicly denounce a group, if you say, I shouldn't have said that, and, I, you know, that's what it was, but people who have terrible ideas or ideologies still find something to latch onto into what you're saying, even if President Trump were to come out and give a speech saying this is terrible, don't do it, people may think, I know what he really means, and I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing.
1: I think it would make a big difference. You do? I really do. I think the majority of people who might have gotten emboldened and worked up during the election and and thought they could say these things that they wouldn't have said, you know, the day before would have stopped. It would have been really powerful right after the election. Uh, more so than now. I think it makes a huge difference. When public figures denounce hatred, racism, xenophobia, mm. it makes people think differently about this. And unfortunately for us, we have an administration that did the opposite, right? It opened the door to making those things more acceptable. So I really think it would make a huge difference. I also think it's just sort of incumbent upon our political leadership to stand against ideas that are so heinous and harm the lives of our fellow citizens.
0: When the trend line has been going the way that it has... How do you, A, stop it and reverse it?
1: The, oh, you're what about the needs to happen? On. The
0: number of groups that you've seen rising over mm-hmm. the years, the level of activity, yeah. the degree to which a lot of this stuff, as you mentioned, has sort of become normalized. We're, we're using phrases and and things that haven't been seen for decades That's here.
1: Right uh, well, political figures matter hugely here. Mm-hmm. Looking at the phenomenon clear-eyed and explaining it is is very, very important. Making sure uh, that tech companies don't make it easy for these people to get their messages out or to make money off of this messaging matters. I'm thinking here of the fact that Google is changing its policies because they were found to have been running ads that funneled $30,000 to former Klansman David Duke's uh, video channel on YouTube. There are a lot of things. You
0: think that private
1: companies hold responsibility? Absolutely. Well, I mean, YouTube itself says that it doesn't uh, funnel money to extremists, but they were found to have been doing that, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a whole host of things that can be done to make civil society more civil, right? Whether it's political figures, you know, there there are things like PayPal is essentially the banking system for hate groups. Why is that? You know, that's how uh, hate groups make money, move money. You know, there's more, you know, several dozen hate groups that use that as their main uh, banking system. Hmm. Why? Why would you engage in that kind of commerce, something we brought up to uh, PayPal? So there's a whole host of things here that matter. I mean, there's no simple answers. But it would be nice if it started from the top to say this stuff is bad. You know, this is this country is very soon going to have no majority population. We can't live uh, and be successful as a democracy if we have civil strife like this. It's really a bad thing for our future. And we've been here before, you know, in the 1920s uh, when a terrible Immigration Act was passed 1924, actually, to ban everyone who was non-white from the country. Actually, he had to be Northern European under that act. That was an era when we had high levels of immigration, and the Klan was at its largest ever. Four Mm -hmm. million Klansmen, and our population was much smaller. We've been through these scenarios before, and what makes it better is taking a stand for civil rights and equality.
0: What worries you most as you see the landscape? You've been tracking it for all these years now. Where are you most intensely focused
1: Well, one of the worst things that's been happening in the last five or six years is just a series of domestic terrorism attacks. I mentioned Dylan Roof, right, killing uh, nine people, black people at a church in Charleston. We did some work on uh, how many of these attacks there actually are by white supremacists and anti-government extremists. And over the last several years of the Obama administration, there was an attack or an attempted attack like that every 34 days. And more people were killed by white guys then killed by radical Islamists. Not not that that's not important, because this is an issue of and, not or, right? Both of those threats are serious. But in terms of the groups
0: that you focus on and work with. yeah.
1: And so, um, I'm very worried that the Trump administration is going to sort of ignore those people, and that we're going to get more violence on that front. Mm -hmm. I don't want that to happen. I want federal policy to stay focused on that. I want federal policy to stay focused on doing things to reduce the number of hate crimes in this country. Mm -hmm. And I worry that that won't be taken seriously by this administration. That remains to be seen, right? And I worry about just these deep divisions that we have um, right now that just can't hold. Because those don't
0: go away, right? Even if you're able Mm to reduce the number of groups or um, or their influence or their reach or, or their funds or whatever it is, those groups don't go away, right? There's always going to be some segment of the population that feels as if they are being forgotten.
1: Yeah, sadly, that's the case. And and it's our history. I mean, we got to remember that a lot of these hate groups, what they're saying right now was regular talk, normal dinner table talk for the majority of Americans back in, let's say, 1960. So that history isn't going to be wiped away overnight, but it can be worked towards being wiped away, um, you know, if we work together. So right. how
0: do we get there? How do you, for for people out there who aren't working like you are <laughs> every day on these issues, What do you do if you if you're a witness to something if you hear about something? What do you do? Do
1: you intervene? Do you report? Yeah, well, intervention is always a little dicey because you don't want people to get hurt, right? I mean, that's the thing. But if you can stand up for someone who's facing like I hate someone screaming terrible things at them, that that's a big deal. Reporting is really important. Law enforcement needs to know what's what's happening. And sometimes this is just a law enforcement issue, right? Because it's criminal activity or violence, and you can't deal with it. I'm a little bit more um, interested in what's happening at sort of the local or maybe even the state level, Uh, civic groups like, you know, holding welcoming uh, communities, right, so Mm -hmm. that immigrants feel safe or working with refugees or holding town halls to talk about diversity and and anything Mm -hmm. having to do with these divisions that we have right now. I have a feeling that it's sort of regular Americans talking to people with different views that is going to get us through this. Um, Although, you know, I'm not trying to make light of our, you know, what what it means for public figures to stand up. Uh, In many ways, I've been, you know, very happy about the protests that have happened against the Muslim ban, the women's march and so on, because I think the vision of society that they're putting out there is a better one than what we've seen so far from this administration. I mean, I'm still hopeful Trump will do something. I don't know that he will, uh, but it would be nice if that happened.
0: Are you hopeful things will get better?
1: It's been such a rough, you know, two years. You've been through the, a lot, uh, both on the hate group count and what's happened in politics. But you know, you gotta hope, right? And certainly, the United States—I mean, whatever we think—it's in a better place than it was in, you know, before the Voting Rights Act was passed and before the Civil Rights Act was passed, the Immigration Act. So we got to keep that in mind. Um, you know that. So you gotta, you gotta hope. Maybe it's a couple steps back, and then we'll have three steps forward.
0: Maybe. Maybe, maybe. Um, How do you Thank you so much for being here, for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me. At Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag uncomfortable talk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.